0: Hello, this is Bishop Michael Fisher of the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. Perhaps you've been asked this question before. If you could have dinner with anyone in history, living or deceased, who would it be? Well, as part of the Diocese of Buffalo's 175th anniversary celebration, we thought it would be interesting to try something like that. And so through the abilities of technology and imagination, we've arranged to meet with some of the people whose work and faith helped shape the diocese, and whose impacts are still seen and felt in the community today. We invite you now to sit back, relax, and enjoy this feast for your ears and your spirit. Welcome to Dinners with Our Founders.
1: Here's your host of Dinners with Our Founders, Steve Sishan. Thank you, Your Excellency, and welcome, everyone, The Diocese of Buffalo was officially established back in the year 1847, but Catholics had been visiting what would become Western New York as early as two centuries before, beginning with French missionaries in the early 1600s. It was a time when the five nations of the Iroquois Confederacy ruled the land, and the Senecas were known as the keepers of the Western Door. Soon though, this region ended up in the hands of the British, and New York was one of its colonies. Catholicism was frowned upon by the English crown, so Catholics living in this region from the late 1600s through the mid-1700s were usually discreet about their faith to avoid persecution. Once the colonies declared independence, more Catholics began to move into the area, and the Catholic Church, which in the late 18th century recognized all of the United States as one diocese led out of Baltimore, broke into four dioceses, including the Diocese of New York. Parishes began forming in the Buffalo area, and priests and sisters and other people religious would arrive in the region, traveling from place to place to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and share the Eucharist. We've welcomed a guest who is one of those priests, who came from Europe to aid local German immigrants, and whose work spans several parishes in the Buffalo area. Joining me now is St. John Neumann. Welcome. Hello. Boy, we really appreciate this opportunity to meet you. Thank you so much. You are most welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Well, and it appears our meals have just arrived. St. John, I've taken the liberty of ordering for the both of us. I've chosen what has become a tradition for many here in western New York, the fish fry. The fish fry? I must say, this is a most unusual way I've seen fish prepared. And local Catholics embrace this? Well, many parishes host fish fry dinners on Fridays during the season of Lent. It helps honor Lenten abstinence, but for many parishes throughout the diocese, it also serves as an opportunity for people to gather, to enjoy each other's company, together as a community. (laughs) Very well done. Fish fry it is. And I thought while we ate, you could look back on your life, some of the challenges as you set to work here in Buffalo, and what you feel you were able to accomplish for those you served. Gladly.
2: Mm, This fish fry, as you call it is quite tasty. It feels quite lavish compared to what I had to eat while carrying out my missions," said his, when I did have food. When I was here on my mission, I lived frequently in poverty. But it wasn't like that for me while growing up. I was born back in 1811, in a place that was then known as Bohemia, which at that time was part of the Austrian Empire. Today, you know it as the Czech Republic, or Czechia. Ah, how many times nations, states, borders, and names changed in Europe over the centuries. My father worked as a stocking weaver. He was originally from Bavaria, in modern-day Germany, but moved to Bohemia with his first wife. Sadly, he was widowed but he later remarried and his second wife, my mother, gave birth to six children. I was the third to be born. My father was a good worker and my mother made sure ours was a good Christian home. I was very studious as a boy. I was always surrounding myself with books. I loved to read. I started school at age six, but by age 10, my parents made an important decision. You see, most young boys, once they finish grammar school, would go find work. My parents decided they would let me continue my education beyond grammar school. When I was 12 years old, I passed an exam which allowed me admission into a school operated by the purest Fathers. They are the oldest Catholic order in Europe dedicated to providing education. At Sapirus School, I was taught history, geography, mathematics, Latin, and Christian doctrine. I was later educated by the Order of Cistercians at Hunfirth Abbey, where I studied philosophy, religion, higher math, and science. I was especially good at botany and astronomy. My education, however, nearly came to a halt. In my third year, I had a new professor who was more energetic, teaching at a faster pace. I didn't like his style and approach, but despite this, I passed my classes. (laughs) And then, the next year, I was living in boarding situations where I was surrounded by people who cared less for studying and more for partying. They were quite distracting. My grades suffered. So much so that my professor thought I, too, was losing interest. I scored lower marks, and that caught the attention of my father, Philip.
3: Son, come sit with me for a moment. We need to talk. What is it, Father? Son, these grades are quite disappointing. You have been a much better student than this. What is wrong?
4: Well, it's... I try to study, but the house where I'm boarding, the woman who provides me the room... She has a son who often distracts me. He's not much of a student and likes to have fun. While I still love to read and learn, perhaps I feel lonely and her son gives me the chance to live a little.
3: It seems to me this boy has already accepted his future working in a mill or a farm or weaving stockings like me. Perhaps you too are feeling you don't want to study anymore? Father, I didn't say that. Perhaps you are better suited leaving school and learning a trade instead?
5: Father, I do not mean to interrupt.
3: What is it, Veronica?
5: Mother and I both feel John needs to press forward with his studies. Please, do not let your host distract you and throw you off a path to greatness.
2: My father was prepared to send me off to learn a trade, but as my sister Veronica said, she and my mother both wanted me to persevere in my studies. My father decided perhaps we should get another opinion, so he asked another professor to meet with me privately to see what the problem might be. That professor saved my academic career.
3: Son, this professor tells me your intelligence and understanding of your subjects is far greater than what your grades might suggest. I am pleasantly surprised by this, and perhaps I was hasty in suggesting that you give up school. But clearly you need to change your habits. You may return to school, but please do not let the others surrounding you take your mind off your studies.
4: Oh, thank you, Father. I promise I will not let you down.
2: My father changed my boarding arrangements. It put me in a more suitable environment to study. My grades improved, going back to the high marks I realized I could have achieved all along. Hmm, so at what point did you hear the call to serve God? (laughs) Well, it wasn't a direct path. Applying for the seminary didn't seem like a good idea at the time. For one thing, I didn't know any influential people or have any contacts who could, as you would say today, put in a good word for me. Besides, I did so well with my science studies that it seemed medical school was the next place for me. My father even offered to pay for such studies had I been accepted. But my mother who was ever so faithful believed deep down inside that i did want to be a priest indeed i do love god very much but again i didn't think i had any chance of getting into the seminary my mother convinced me to at least try i applied
1: and to my surprise i got in (laughs) well it appears that god does steer you on the correct path even if you don't always recognize it this is true but for many that path may be
2: rough in the beginning It sure was rough for me. It was in my second year of seminaries that I learned of the need for priests in the United States of America to serve German-speaking immigrant populations. I recalled the words of our Lord, Go and teach all nations. After finishing my seminary studies, I decided I needed to become a missionary and go to America. My family did not take the news so well.
5: John, you are breaking our hearts. I understand that there is a need to spread God's word to the people, but America? That is so far away. I fear we will never see you again.
4: Veronica, my dear sister, I understand this is not easy, but it is God's command to go out and teach all nations. There are good Catholics living in America who came from Germany who are in dire need of priests in their new homeland
5: then why don't they send priests from Germany to go help them?
4: You must remember, sister, our father is from Bavaria. He is German. We have German blood. We have Catholic spirit. Those people now in America, they share our blood and our spirit. They need priests to bring them the gospel as well as the Eucharist. It is my calling from God to be there. My
2: sister Veronica... Indeed, my whole family. They were all very saddened that I intended to move so far away to become a missionary. Leaving them was difficult. Adding to the sadness was the fact I would not yet become a priest before leaving. I was supposed to be ordained before departing for America. However, our bishop, who was to ordain me, had become seriously ill. In the meantime, our home diocese had enough priests for their needs and there was still a list of priests who were previously ordained, who were evading assignments. And so my scheduled ordination ceremony was canceled. I would not become a priest before leaving for America. I would not be able to give my family my first priestly blessing. I would not be able to have them present at my first
1: mass. Mm, That had to be heartbreaking. You were, though, finally ordained a priest upon arriving here in America. Getting to America, though, I hear was challenging for you. Oh, indeed it was. The original plan was for me to travel
2: to Philadelphia and serve there. But communication between Philadelphia and Bohemia could be quite slow, that is, if the letters of correspondence actually ever arrived. I learned to my dismay that the opening I was preparing to fill in Philadelphia was no longer available, that was given to someone else. Also, no longer available to me was the money intended to pay for my travel. I had no position and only a limited amount of money in my pocket. Yet, the call to serve in America never went away. Because Philadelphia no longer presented me with an opportunity to serve, I decided I would try traveling to New York instead. I waited in France for my chance to board a ship. I found one, but there were delays before I was able to board it. To pass the time, I prayed, did much reading, and practiced my English and French. Then, about a week after Easter in 1836, I was finally out to sea. The journey across the Atlantic was 40 days. Yes, I felt seasick in the beginning, but I soon overcame that and felt better. Sometimes the seas weren't rough at all, but instead were too calm. That sometimes slowed our progress. In May 1836, on the eve of Trinity Sunday, we finally saw land. Unfortunately, we couldn't dock just yet. The weather was poor. And there were people aboard who were sick, we needed to spend time in quarantine and wait for those people to feel better. Otherwise, we'd all be sent back to Europe. I was eager to get to shore and begged the captain many times to let me embark. He refused my first several requests, but soon he finally relented. I was put in a rowboat and taken to Staten Island. From there, I was able to get a ride on another boat to Manhattan. I arrived with only one dollar in my pocket. My suit was absolutely tattered, and I didn't have a plan for where to stay, so I wandered for a while. I found the nearest Catholic church, where the pastor greeted me and led me to Bishop John Dubois of New York. And it was then that my fortunes changed and improved. John Neumann, please come in. I've been expecting you. It was on the Feast of Corpus Christi that I met Bishop Dubois. When he learned who I was and why I had come to New York, he welcomed me with open arms. My goodness, look at you, all soaking wet. You must be chilled to your bones. If you stay like that much longer, you'll catch consumption. And I'm sure you're very hungry. He gave me some dry, warm clothes to wear and sat me down and fed me a nice hot meal. Bishop Dubois was clearly excited to see me. God has brought you to us. John, I'm in desperate need of men with apostolic zeal. You need not worry. I am aware of who you are. We've received a letter confirming your education back in Europe and your acceptance as a priest to serve here in New York. Ah, but does the letter explain that I have not yet been ordained? You need not worry about that. We will take care of that straight away. And just three weeks after my arrival, on June 25th, 1836, he ordained me a priest. The following day, I said my first mass. I will never forget my vow to God. I said, I will pray to you that you may give to me holiness and to all the living and the dead garden, that someday we may all be together with you, our dearest God. And then I was assigned to head westward to do what I came to America to do. I would be heading westward in New York State, which at that time was all part of the Diocese of New York. I was provided a new suit and some money to pay for travel expenses, and I was off on my assignment to serve German immigrants in Buffalo. I first obtained passage on a steamer, traveling north on the Hudson River, and then, upon arriving in Albany, took a canal boat vest along the Erie Canal. Ah, what a fine innovation in its time. Before arriving in Buffalo, I spent a week in Rochester. It was a nice place to visit, and the German immigrant population was especially happy to see me. They worshiped in the basement of St. Patrick's Church, a mostly Irish parish. But they yearned for a German-speaking priest. I preached. I heard confessions. I baptized. I taught the children. I enjoyed it there. But, alas, my ultimate destination was Buffalo. And so I completed my journey, arriving in Buffalo on July 12th. When I arrived, I met Father Alexander Pax, who served and worked out of Lamb of God Church in Buffalo. He had a lot of territory to cover and little help. Father John Mertz also served in Buffalo, but when I arrived, he was away in Europe seeking funds to build a church in the town of Eden. I decided I was most useful if I traveled among the unfinished churches in areas near Buffalo. One was in a place called North Bush. Today, you call it Kenmore. Another was in what is now the town of Lancaster. And a third was in the village you know as Williamsville. Because this one was more centrally located, I decided I moved there. When I came to Williamsville, the church you know today as Saints Peter and Paul was still a work in progress. It was built on land donated by a Mr. Ozil Smith, who was not Catholic, but felt a community church was needed for the village. He offered up the land on the condition that the church be made of stone. Upon my arrival, the walls were erected, but there was no paved floor,
1: nor was there a roof yet, but the church was in use. Yeah, with the weather we can get here... I imagine it was a challenge at times to host masses and other services in those churches.
2: Ah, this is true. But in the beginning, the weather wasn't necessarily the greatest obstacle. There were some other man-made difficulties which challenged me. You see, while Mr. Smith was gracious enough to recognize the need for a community church, there were some non-Catholics in the village who did not take as kindly to my presence and to Catholic Masses. The very first time I presided over Mass inside the church, some of them took advantage of the open roof. They picked up rocks and threw them into the church. One of them even landed right on the altar. Fortunately, we were able to have a roof built on the church by the end of the year. I was boarding at the home of Jacob Wirz, He loaned $400, but instead of receiving the money back, he agreed that instead, the church would offer up a mass in his memory once a year, every year, after his death. We got our roof just in time to protect us from the snow (laughs) and the rocks. Next to the church, there was a school. I decided to assume leadership of the school. I would teach for two hours in the morning and then two more hours in the afternoon. They were good learners of catechism, and I'd teach them to sing in the liturgy. If one of them complained of a sore throat, I'd slip them a little rock candy. (laughs) It's amazing how their throats felt better with a little incentive.
1: And that was just one church and school in that wide territory you covered? Ah, it was, I taught at the school
2: in Williamsville for only a few months until we could find and hire a teacher to take over. But there were other problems. The lay people who made up the trustees were powerful and sometimes self-serving. I needed to be careful with my interactions. One such influential trustee spread a rumor about my lodging. I was staying in a room above a tavern and it was suggested the only way I could go into my room was to first pass through the room of a servant girl working for the tavern below. As you might imagine, such gossip could lead to people getting ideas. The trustees met to decide whether Mr. Wirtz should dismiss this poor young girl, but she had done nothing wrong. Luckily, they decided I, too, was innocent of any wrongdoing, as they concluded that the trustee who spread the rumor did so out of jealousy because I had chosen to stay with Mr. Hertz and not in that person's residence. Well, let's be thankful that cooler heads prevailed. While, as you say, cooler heads prevailed, that incident bothered me. I felt perhaps a change of location was necessary. I relocated to North Bush, where I worked to get another school built. And then I led an effort to get a third school built in Lancaster. The me in North Bush was St. John the Baptist Church, which in my time was a log chapel built by German immigrants. In the beginning, I stayed in the home of Mr. John Schmidt. It was generous of his household to give me a room, but it wasn't long before the people built a two-room log cabin adjacent to the chapel, which became my rectory. While this was now my home, I continued my mission to serve many more people across many, many miles. I would trek by foot to reach destinations including Swarmville, Batavia, Pendleton, Niagara Falls. I even had traveled as far south as to what is now the town of Sheldon. Remember, there was no Diocese of Buffalo just yet. This was all still affiliated with New York, and I had agreed to cover the countryside. I learned firsthand how different and treacherous western New York weather can be. I traveled in rain, in snow, and in summer heat, carrying my vestiges and other priestly instruments in a pack on my back. I did this for four years. It was oftentimes grueling, but it was necessary. The United States was in the midst of an economic crisis, the so-called Panic of 1837. Many Catholics in Buffalo and neighboring areas were without work and were very poor. They needed the reinvigorating energy of the Holy Spirit. It was up to me to make sure they had it. Some of the people, recognizing the many miles I had traveled by foot, took pity on me. They presented me with a horse. This would be most helpful in my travel to more outlying parts of the region. But first I had to learn how to ride it properly. (laughs) Yes, the horse threw me from time to time. And I stood only 5 feet 2 inches. I struggled just to put my feet in the stirrups, which made it easier for the horse to eject me. Thanks be to God that I was never seriously hurt. I slowly gained the horse's trust. I would walk alongside it until it realized we were partners. More than that, we became friends. I eventually was able to become a competent rider, though never an expert equestrian. Sometimes the villagers and townspeople would be amused watching me as I rolled on my horse, but it did make it easier to travel from church to church, place to place, person to person. I could preach, I could teach the children, I could care for the sick, I could share the Eucharist.
1: And yet, in time, it was beginning to wear me out. We know priests today are stretched considerably having to serve so many people, but you... You really did go about your work alone most of the time.
2: And it was often a very lonely experience, which tested my physical and spiritual strength.
1: When I was hungry,
2: I never sought to impose on people to make them think I was trying to, as you might say, mooch a meal. Yet some of the people I served were kind and provided me corn and potatoes so I would not starve. Oh, that felt like a feast. Not much different from how this uh, fish fry, as you say, is to me right now. Still, as I continued to work and travel, finally in the summer of 1840, my strength broke down and I fell ill. I was unable to serve for three months. I rode to Europe seeking more priests. While I was unsuccessful in recruiting more priests, I did get a pleasant surprise the previous September. My brother Wenzel had arrived from Bohemia. He was most helpful with cooking, and more importantly, teaching the children in school. He also brought me news about my family. As I continued to recover and remained idled, I began to think about my future. Before I arrived in Buffalo, I remembered an encounter during my visit to Rochester. There I had met Father Joseph Prost, who was the American superior of the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer, or more simply, the Redemptorists.
5: Please, be comfortable for a few minutes and have some tea. I'm
2: sure you're tired from your long journey along the canal. It was long, but rather than let the hours pass by idly, I filled them with prayer, and pondering for my forthcoming mission. Ah, yes, you're headed to Buffalo.
5: I wish we could keep you here. Alas, I imagine they are in great need of priests over there. But tell me, have you ever considered becoming a Redemptorist? A Redemptorist, Father? The formal name is the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer. We are known as Redemptorists for short. We are missionaries, like you. We serve the poor. Our founder, Bishop Alphonsus Liguri,
2: was just canonized a saint only about a year ago. That is quite impressive. Not just that your founder is a saint, but also that the news of I traveled here so quickly. <laughs> Perhaps there was some divine assistance to spread that news.
5: But getting back to the Redemptorists, we too share many of the goals that you certainly will seek to accomplish in your mission. But we work together. It is easier, we believe, to achieve God's work that way. And it is easier for us to cope with the struggles when we have our peers to support us.
2: I'm sure there is strength in numbers, but there are people in need who have no one to serve them right now. I feel strongly that God is calling me to fill that void and help those people. That is fair enough. But before you depart for Buffalo,
5: let me offer you some words to consider. They are from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 10. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there
2: is not another to lift him up. After roughly four years of traveling the western New York countryside alone, I indeed yearned to be in a community again. So, in the fall of 1840, I wrote to Father Prost, recalling that conversation and asked to be admitted to the Redemptorists. My request was accepted, and after joining the Redemptorists, I was soon on my way to Pittsburgh to begin my new role. My brother came along, joining the Redemptorists himself as a lay brother. As a novice, I traveled through Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Maryland.
1: So your travels took you right into Baltimore, and I understand your role in the American Catholic Church only grew from there. Yes, it was in Baltimore where in 1842 I took my
2: vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a redemptorist. Later, in 1847, I became the order's American superior. And then in 1852, the Holy See appointed me Bishop of Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, I introduced two things which were embraced and adapted by other dioceses. One was the 40 hour Eucharistic devotion, the other was a centralized Catholic school system, complete with its own school board. You see, in 1850s Philadelphia, more Catholic immigrants were arriving, but they worried about discrimination in public schools. And so, I led the creation of a school system which strengthened education while also preserving the Catholic perspective as so many immigrant families wanted. I did have the opportunity as Bishop of Philadelphia to travel to Rome. I did so in 1854, and on December 8th of that year, I was inside St. Peter's Basilica as Pope Pius IX solemnly declared, as infallible, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary. Meanwhile, back in Philadelphia, my work was bearing fruit. Upon my arrival, we began with just one parochial school. Over time, that number grew up to 200 of them.
1: You'd said it earlier. You answered your call to serve God, but were put on an indirect path. And now, here you were, arriving in Philadelphia, many years after you first intended to go there.
2: Ah, yes indeed. Yes, indeed. But, alas, it was also where my path ended. In January 1860, I was out on errands when I was suddenly stricken. I collapsed and died right on the street. I was only 48 years old.
1: Well, you might not have been on this earth very long, but your efforts left a lasting impact. While you only spent four years in Buffalo in western New York, many of the churches and schools you had a hand in building are still standing. They include St. Peter and Paul in Williamsville, St. John the Baptist in Kenmore, and St. Mary Church on the Hill in Lancaster. Other churches and parishes sprouted up from the spiritual seeds you planted all those years ago as well, And in 1882, your peers determined that you had a holiness which possibly qualified you for canonization. After years of investigation, including three miracles of healing attributed to you, Pope Paul VI canonized you as a saint in 1977. I am grateful to God that my work
2: may still touch faithful Catholics today.
1: So what would you say to Catholics here in Buffalo today?
2: Well, again, I was inspired by the words of our Lord, Go and teach all nations. I see here in Buffalo, people from around the world continue to come here and settle today. Many of them may be Catholics, or they may be looking for a path to God. Either way, you need not travel as extensively as I had to. Look within your own neighborhood, look within your own hearts, and always be encouraged. Well, St. John Neumann, it looks like you've quickly finished your fish fry. Yes, as odd as this meal may look to me, it was quite nourishing. Let us pray in hopes that many other Catholics and Western New Yorkers as a whole enjoy these fish fries
1: together as a community for many years to come. And now, St. John Neumann, let's discuss dessert. While we do that, let's welcome back Bishop Michael Fisher, who offers his brief thoughts on St. John Neumann and his impact on the Diocese of Buffalo.
0: As you just heard, St. John Neumann was an important builder of the Catholic faith of Buffalo and Western New York, before there actually was a Diocese of Buffalo. An avid student in his youth, St. John Neumann was inspired, as you heard in his words, to go and teach all nations. He taught, preached, and shared the good news of Jesus Christ, and shared the Eucharist with piety and zeal, traveling many miles. Sometimes alone, right up to the point of it physically wearing him down. He did not stay for long in Buffalo, nor was he on this earth for very long, but many fruits of his labor still stand today. When canonizing Neumann, a saint, in 1977, Pope Paul VI said this about him He was close to the sick, he loved to be with the poor, he was a friend of sinners and now he is the glory of all immigrants. That is indeed who St. John Neumann was when he served here in Buffalo as a young priest. As the Diocese of Buffalo marks 175 years of existence, let us be grateful for his legacy and celebrate it further by continuing his work, comforting the sick, aiding the poor, reaching out to sinners, and welcoming our newest neighbors. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dinners with Our Founders. Thank you for listening, and God bless you.
5: This is Dinners with Our Founders, imagined one-on-one conversations spotlighting the lives of some of those who shaped the Roman Catholic Diocese of Buffalo throughout its history. The program was conceived by Patrick Beakey and produced by the Department of Communications of the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. The voice talents participating were Bishop Michael Fisher as himself, Steve Seashon as your host, Richard Martone as St. John Neumann, Christian Riso as Philip Neumann, Max Riso as the young John Neumann, Carrie Rosiak as Veronica Neumann, Gregory Tobin as Bishop John Dubois, and I'm Michael Rosiac who played Father Joseph Prost. I am also the program's writer and producer. Thank you for joining us for Dinners with Our
4: Founders.